Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sportstone Podcast for test day one. The Ashes is back after a long break in which those like me who are covering the match got a break and the players also got a break. One holidays, perhaps the break you can say fizzled the excitement out of the series a bit. Um, but I think that a break was necessary, obviously for the longevity of the players and to maintain sort of the the energy they're putting in within the cricket. But also I think just taking a bad stage away from the drama of every day, getting to sort of absorb everything um, and reflect on sort of what's occurred and then sort of come back to this test match. Anyways, the match situation is as follows. England won the toss, went to the ball first. Um, the only change they made was that James Anderson came in for Ollie Robinson. Um, the change that's really made was that Cameron Green came in for Todd Murphy um, and the rest was unchanged. Oh yeah, Josh Hazelwood came in for Scott Boland. And Australia finished 299 for 8 after... 83 hours at the end of the day, with Mitchell Marsh top scoring with 51. Lama Shane also made 51. With England, the pick of the ball has been Chris Wokes, 4 for 52. I think the first thing we have to focus on is that decision to bowl first on a pitch that actually doesn't seem a typical England wicket, especially a typical Old Trafford wicket where it nips around the, the it's overcast. Um, it can be a bit of turn on day 4 and 5, but yeah, it isn't your typical uh, Old Trafford wicket. Um, the high bounce isn't actually like consistent. Like it is bouncing o- over a lot. But a lot of the LBWs are actually like even the ones that are hitting the top of the knee are going on to hit the stumps, as we found out yesterday with the umpires sort of giving a lot not out, England re- reviewing them and getting them out. Um, but England's decision ball first. I think this. I think the main reason is they just back chasing, and it's so it's so paradoxical to what how this how sort of the trajectory of Test cricket has played out over the years. Teams don't usually like chasing because fourth innings, pitch deteriorates, spinners, etc., uh, pressure of runs, all, all that. But England basketball actually likes chasing because, funnily, I think it actually gives them one a license to play that free that that way that they want to play, and like to to an extent, they don't need that license because they're given that license anyways. And McCollum and Stokes are so adamant on that license. But two, I think. A chase it sort of gives them a framework for their chaos because for example if they were chasing 250 can, and then they end up being 160 for five they would moderate their freedom a bit more but if they were chasing 400 they would probably just keep going keep going keep going um even if they're 165 because they're so far away from the the, the target so i think it gives them the aspect of of moderation to how sort of free they can be and I think other than that it's confidence they won in chases they won in the chase last game so they just believe it's the the winning recipe um and perhaps they want the freedom of chasing considering the weather around so they just you know they're like even if we only get 40 50 hours to chase something we're just gonna go as hard as we can because we know we need to win to keep the ashes alive the the counterpoint to this was that it was looked a pretty good wicket it was sunny um and the fact that there is weather around sort of made it that if Australia batted really well for one and a half days, it would be very hard for England to force a result in this test match, and if they can't force a result in this test match, guess what? The Ashes are gone. Um, I don't think you can criticise Stokes too much, especially considering the fact that Pat Cummins said the same thing, or that he wouldn't bowl first anyways, but we don't know how much of that is just mind games. I think the decision makes sense. Perhaps the weather may have been only the the only mitigating factor of that decision. But, um, yeah, I, I do think the decision makes sense. It started off with David Bourne actually looking pretty 
pretty good with, with his intent and his organization. He was he was pretty quick to pounce on the, on the bad balls, which I thought England did give a few too many of in, in that first session, um, especially to that period when Smith and Lambertine at the the end of the first session with Smith essentially raced away to a run of all thirty. Um, I thought Stuart Broad was at his best in that first session. The ball to get with Ron Codger was a cracking ball, but um, I, I thought his lengths and lines were a bit wayward. It was a bit two-sided, and he was a bit up and down in terms of lengths as well. Uh, but David Warner threw it away, um, just reached at one, got sucked at by one essentially, that was full up. And he reached at one he shouldn't have, and he knew as soon as he nicked it, he was like, oh my god, what have I done? And that is the story of David Warner in England. He looks good, he said, he's been saying it in press conferences and podcasts. That he's been looking good, but the big score still isn't there, and I think that's the only thing that can sort of save the criticism that is always going to come at David Warner in England. He just needs a big score to shut it up. A 30 or a 50 won't do. Um, and to be fair, it was a it was a a day of of 30s and 50s. If you if we just run through a string, Warner 32. Labuschagne 51, Smith 41, Head 48, Mitchell Marsh 51. They have five people here who had the opportunity to get a big one. Five. None of them really did. Labuschagne and Mitchell Marsh converted the star into a 50. But yeah, and the scorecard completely reflects that. 308 on a wicket that isn't actually that bad. Yeah, it's a bit inconsistent, a bit slow, as Labuschagne himself said. I think the word he used was tackiness with the bounce. Um, and there was a lot of sort of sideways movement towards the end of the day that Chris Wokes exploited. But 300 for 8, it keeps England winning the game because of just how fast and sort of chaotic they, they play. Um, to really challenge England, you need 400 plus and batting first. Especially after being 183 for 3, Australia haven't got that. And once again, they have squandered an advantage, which has been the story of the series for both sides. The this edition, just being the strongest edition. Um, and more than the fact that the starts weren't converted, it was the way the dismissal occurred. So David Warner, as we discussed, it was it moved, but it was a pretty regulation morning delivery in England. Warner just lost his concentration a bit, reached out a bit more than he did, and wasn't a great shot. Labuschagne, he got lazy, admittedly, self-admittedly, he got lazy. It was a ball that turned a bit, not much, it turned a bit, but he tried to flick it as if he was playing on a day three or a day four wicket that ball still needs to be played relatively straight or if you're going to flick it you're going to flick it late and under your eyes he saw just nonchalantly flicked it and basically missed a straight one steve smith missed a straight one was done with the the extra pace of mark wood um travis head fell to the the short ball plan which is the most obvious thing to perceive and pick at this stage which we're going to discuss later the feasibility of the short ball plan travis head Mitchell Marsh got a very good ball. Uh, I think he's the only one that can say that, you know what, my dismissal, yeah, I, he got a really good ball. And he got a screamer catch from Johnny Mastro as well. Uh, and uh, the the comedy of the celebration that followed it. Cameron Green played way too square, looked to play that ball way too square and just dismissed it. Um, Alex Carey, hesitant. Um, all of these dismissals were innocuous deliveries. I think the I think Kuzman Kwaja got a pretty good ball. I think Mitchell Marsh got a pretty good ball. Um, yeah, and, uh, Steve Smith perhaps with the sort of the relentlessness of Mark Wood's pace, you can say that the other just that ball was straight, but it was quick. So I guess that's the, the mitigating factor that, that Steve Smith can sort of cling on to. But they were innocuous balls, and 
that's the story of, of the first day. That's the story of to be fair, the test series for both sides. England could be three 0 up. Australia could be three 0 up. England could be two one up. Australia could be um ahead of this match itself and on their way to retaining the Ashes. It's been key moments where where both sides have just failed to take advantage of of them. Um, yesterday being being straight to. I want to focus on um, Stuart Broad's day. His figures, I think, are, are reflective of his day. 2 for 68 after 14 overs, going close to 5 and over. That's pretty remarkable for, for someone like Stuart Broad. Especially how, especially the, sort of the the mental baggage that Stuart Broad has over the Australian batters, particularly David Warner. You don't expect him to go at such a high rate because, one, he's a really good bowler. He's really, really consistent. He's really, really relentless. But two, they're going to be a bit more cautious against him. But I think the figures aren't don't lie. I think Stuart Broad was a bit erratic and a bit out of rhythm yesterday. I'm not sure if it's the long layover muscles becoming stiff or the fact that he's actually playing four test matches on the bounce. But he wasn't wasn't Stuart Broad. But the irony being that despite his bad day, he actually goes home feeling very satisfied because of the milestone that he achieved and. Fair enough, Stuart Broad got six got his six hundred test record yesterday. That is a remarkable testimony to longevity. Um that is a remarkable testimony to the skill, fitness, persistence of this cricketer. It shows that not just in England he can do stuff other other places well. Obviously he's been the most effective in England but and we know that um from the, the various brilliant bowling performances had the one that always you, you get reminded of is, is Trent Bridges in Australia on that first morning. Um and I thought an interesting stat that, that I think was in um, Bonnie Murray's piece from the Cardi was that this was England's oldest ever five man bowling attack combined age of hundred and eighty years. Um and uh, yeah, as Barney said, they just refused to let Australia take the ascendancy. 100 for 2, Australia scoring quickly, came back after lunch and kept it a bit tighter. 183 for 3, Australia and Travis Head and Alice Longshane looking relentless and looking sort of un- unshakable. But guess what, they came back. And um, I think to put that down to is just the consistency of Chris Wokes and Mark Wood, and even James Anderson. Because James Anderson doesn't look very effective, if we're being honest, he doesn't look very very threatening, but he puts it in that spot, he's still hard to score off, and um, yesterday England, thanks to Crick Viz, as always, for his great work yesterday, England bought it, um, on, in that classic test match, good length, they bought 45.7% of the deliveries, almost half the deliveries, that's compared to 30 to 35% in the first two test matches, that is a great increase, and that's a very good increase, considering there were a few periods in the day where they were going primarily short or they're a bit too inconsistent so it shows that the periods where they got it right they really really got it right hence the lack of runs um the stifling which led to the wickets and i, I think that's p- perhaps also a factor which contributed to a strength sort of squandered advantage let's focus on the short ball plan to travis I, I i wrote a piece on it during the the break between the two test matches where essentially i i said that tra- the short ball plan to travis said is i think a mis-executed short ball plan by England. I'm not saying that a short ball plan Travis Head shouldn't exist, but it shouldn't be a plan that consists of a bouncer barrage. Travis Head is a tre- trend in his dismissals where he gets comfortable around, uncomfortable around essentially his armpit slash upper hip area when on the leg side. He jumps up, he loses balance, and he sort of just fends at it and often gets caught at leg gully or um, 
down the leg side with a keeper. It's happened um, Mark Wood in Hobart in the previous Ashes, uh, Janssen uh, in the home summer, Siraj um, in the World Test Championship final, and that's how England started off yesterday. When I was watching it, I was like, yes, nice, you've got it right. The only issue being that even if he didn't look uncomfortable to it, which he did, which he did, there wasn't, the field wasn't in place for it. They had still had all the plays, in, all the fields in the deep, deep, mid, deep square, cow corner. That's a bouncer plan. So inevitably, they did go to the bouncer, and Travis Head is good at the bouncer. He actually averages quite good in, against the bouncer. I think it's like, I think it's his highest average of a length in Tesco. And that's what they did yesterday, and he started then hitting them. They started going away from the length that actually makes them uncomfortable. And the other thing is that Travis Head knows that that length makes him uncomfortable, so he's obviously going to work on it. That's why he's a number three test batter in the corner. That's why even yesterday, despite them bowling at the weakness, he looked so good. And what he's done to work on the weakness is open up his stance. His front foot now comes down the line and leg stomp. But I still find it hard to believe that that stance is fully ingrained in his muscle memory. So if you surprise him with that uncomfortable ball and that you can bowl to him, then perhaps you can get him. So there still needs to be a bit more sort of refining in that short ball than Travis said, but perhaps it should be used sparingly and the field needs to be changed. And I think that was reflected the way Travis said yesterday because I think I thought it looked really good. I thought he was relatively untroubled mostly, and I thought he made a really good 48 runs and threw it away. I, I don't think the short ball plan necessarily um, got him out. I think it was a lack of concentration. He just threw his wicket away. Let's focus on sort of the the interesting relationship and sort of the. I guess the team selection with Australia having both Cameron Green and Mitchell Marsh. The obvious rationale behind the team selection is that Mitchell Marsh becomes undroppable after he scored one of the most remo more remarkable hundreds that you can see. But Cameron Green is a project player. He's the future captain. He's what they think is a generational talent, a great bowler, a great batter, so they can't drop him. And to an extent, they probably feel that bit bad dropping him because he was injured. He's a young lad. They don't want his confidence to get dented. But it does severely shake up their balance. Now they have an all pace attack, all pace bowling lineup, no spinner on the ground that is reputed to deteriorate a bit in the last few days. And just the fact of having not a spinner, a front lancer in a test match after 10 years for Australia, that is. But they bat really deep, which is, I guess, um, a positive uh, in terms of your, your batting shape up. But I, I do think that needs to be a serious discussion on Sir Cameron's identity as a test match batter. He scored 6 and 25 against India. He scored 38, 28 and 0 and 18 in the first two tests and now 20 here. His average of 34 with the bat. He's 24 now, so he's still young, but he's not like 21, 20 level young. He's grown into a test career. And he's played close to 25 test matches. This is These aren't numbers that are necessarily generational. And I'm not saying he's not generational, because to be fair, I do believe he is. And players take time to grow into a test match career. Virat Kohli was a great example. Um, Steve Smith is a great example, even Sachin Tendulkar, although him being anomalous because he debuted at the age of 16. So I'm not, I'm not saying Cameron Green won't be a, a generational test match player, but I, I do think Cameron Green perhaps maybe needs to do a bit of self-reflection, and maybe some of the boys need to speak to Cameron Green, because he looks a bit lost in terms of where he wants to bat. He looks a bit hesitant and a bit reluctant, just the way he gets out is just so underwhelming. And I think Cameron Green, I think one good shot he played yesterday was a sort of Cover driver, I think it was fielded mid off in the end uh, with, with a diving field, but he just 
looked so confident, his front foot, his head fully leaning in, it was a very elegant drive, and Cameron really asserted himself a bit more, the way he did for more minutes in the IPL, obviously that format allows him to assert himself because of uh, sort of the, the free scoring nature of that format, and uh, I just think there's a very powerful sort of juxtaposition between him and Mitchell Marsh, and sort of their positions in the Tesco area right now. Mitchell Marsh is essentially basking in the glory of of a freedom which stems from a lack of expectation and just the fact that he knows that he's not going to play any more test matches unless he keeps scoring runs but he wasn't even expected to play that last one so he's just grabbing whatever opportunity is presented to him and you can see that freedom that fearlessness in his batting that we discussed in, in, in the last test match podcast he's just saying that okay there's this one particular line length that I always get out to going hard at, at a good length ball so I'm going to try as hard as I can to not get out to that but if I see a board there that I think I can hit I'm going to hit and I'll live with the consequences it's very basketball-esque um, which pretty sure he even mentioned to be fair um, and I, I, to an extent I agree with him so that's something they need to consider the Cameron Green. I'm not saying drop him. I'm not saying take him on the team. No, I, I think I think you do have to invest in certain plays where you think that are generational. I think you have to put time in them um, and hope that the investment pays off. But perhaps it's time for Cameron Green to really start finding his feet and asserting his dominance over world cricket um, over long periods. Chris Wilkes. We talked to him at the end of last test match. And sort of the description I use at the end of the last test match is that Chris Wilkes just maximizes all the resources that he has as a cricketer. He tries as hard as he looks at every opportunity he can, any piece of movement there is, he'll, he'll extract, he'll try to even gain, he basically gained every, every bit of pace that he can with his body and, and his technique. He's made the required adjustments with the brace front leg to gain that pace and he's worked hard on that basically he's tried everything he can to become the best bowler he can and, and we're seeing that now I think because once again yesterday it was Chris Brooks who brought that game back to England that delivery to get rid of Mitchell Marsh was great um, to get rid of David Warner after he looked pretty settled was great Cameron Green and Alex Carey after both of them put on decent partnerships Green with Marsh and Carey also um no, carry with Stark. So, and this was resistance that was essentially potentially could have taken us through the 350-400, which, as I said, is a bit more of a dominating score um, with the weather around and the way England play. But it was Chris Wokes who was there, and his figures res- reflect that 4 for 52 after 19 overs. He was the epitome of those 45% of deliveries in a good length. Because you know what, Mark Wood, his natural length is going to be a bit shorter. Please, way balls. Um, Nevertheless, he was also remarkably consistent and relentless, and I think these two change a day around for England. Mark would perhaps not reward it as much as he deserved, but Chris Wilkes, re- Chris Wilkes re- reaping the rewards, and deservedly so. He's a, such a fascinating cricket study, and I, honestly, I, I think you just can't help but feel happy for him. And what he's done is once again set up a very even test match, and probably England in the ascendancy, considering all, all things, what Australia could have got. Um, England's decision to bowl first, the conditions, and the way England play, you probably say it's 55-45 England, maybe it was 60-40 England. Day two, we don't know what that'll be. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes back Australia. So anyway, it stays 50-50 because that's what this test series has been. And that's why you can't help but think but maybe it's made for a 2-2 going to the fifth test, but we don't know yet. It's still four days of cricket to play, and it can drastically change, especially with basketball. See you back.
for day two. If you are enjoying these daily breakdowns, please follow so you can get notified when you, the, these daily breakdowns get uploaded. But also help supporting this podcast. Leave a like, um, share it, review it. See you again tomorrow.